I've already mentioned that our speaker tonight is, is Jared Wilson. Um, let me tell you just a little bit about him in case uh, you have not had a chance to, to look at the bio or so that you can get to know him. Uh, Jared is the pastor of Middletown Springs Community Church. Is that right? Okay. It's a long... It's, Worried I would mess part of that up, which is in Middletown Springs, Vermont. Um, he's been there since 2009, originally from Texas, and then spent some time in Nashville. He and his wife, Becky, have two daughters, Macy and Grace. And uh, some of you may know Jared from his blog on the Gospel Coalition. Some of you may have come across some of his books and such, uh, which I, I pointed out to a little bit earlier. But if you're at all familiar with any of Jared's work, you'll notice a, a consistent theme, a word that keeps popping up in virtually every single title, and it's the gospel. Uh, Jared uh, has a passion for the centrality of the gospel. Um, uh, D.A. Carson, who's a, a scholar, has written on the importance of gospel centrality and the common yet dangerous tendency to assume the gospel, uh, as, as Carson says here, this tendency to assume the gospel while devoting creative energy and passion to other issues, marriage, happiness, prosperity, evangelism, the poor, and so on. Uh, Carson says, this overlooks the fact that our hearers inevitably are drawn toward that which we are most passionate. Every teacher knows that. My students are unlikely to learn all that I teach them, they are most likely to learn that about which I am most excited. So if the gospel's merely assumed while relatively peripheral issues ignite our passion, we will train a new generation to downplay the gospel and focus zeal on the periphery. It's easy to sound prophetic from the margins. What is urgently needed is to be prophetic from the center. And if there's a way I could describe uh, Jared's work and ministry, it's that, being prophetic from the center, from the center of the gospel. And so we're privileged to have him with us this weekend. Jared, come on up. Well, thank you. It's a great privilege to be with you. I wanted to move this up so I didn't feel like I was speaking across the great expanse or the Red Sea or whatever it is. Uh, if you have a Bible handy, I'd ask if you turn to Romans chapter 15. We're going to be looking at uh, the first seven verses of this chapter. Um, I'll be uh, speaking from the ESV translations, so, um, but it shouldn't be too different um, from your pew Bible or if you have a different translation there, unless you have some not inspired version. Um, all right. Just testing the crowd a little bit. We'll see how. <laughs> um, the mission of the church is exactly that. It's the mission of the church. And the reason why um, we have to state the obvious and, and be emphatic about the obvious is because many of us, um, and I'll speak for myself, but me and um, many of the of those in my generation came up in a church tradition, a church culture that treated mission as something that those people do. Um, we support missionaries, we fund missionaries, but the idea of, of mission work, of a, uh, a missionary organization or uh, missional enterprise, all of that was something that took place you know, overseas. It took place in foreign territory. And the closest that we regular stateside churchgoers would come to such a thing, missionary work, um, was what we would call personal evangelism. And when we were trained in personal evangelism, we weren't often trained in it, but we were... Um, 
often told we needed to engage in it. But when we were trained in it, um, we were trained to approach personal evangelism um, a lot like trying to sell someone something. So there were lots of formulas. There were lots of what, looking back, I might call sales pitches. You're trying to corner somebody with these rhetorical questions or um, surreptitiously ask them questions like, can I uh, interest you in a survey? You know, we're taking a religious survey. And uh, eventually what you're trying to get them to admit is, yes, I am a sinner, and you've cornered them. And then you ask them to pray the prayer and that sort of thing. I will confess or I will admit um, that there are people who came to the Lord through such means. Um, but to call that witnessing, as we often did, um, I think belies the reality, the predominant picture that we have in the scriptures of what to bear witness really looks like or who it is actually that is bearing witness. Um, what we called witnessing, or at least what my church culture, the church culture that I grew up in, what we called witnessing was the role of the individual Christian um, in large part disconnected from the life of the church, from the communal body of believers. And so what many of us have inherited um, as we think about mission work or even evangelism specifically as part of this mission to proclaim the gospel um, is really two problems. And the first is this, a reduction of mission to an individualistic formula and then a decontextualizing of mission from the corporate witness of the church. So we're going to let, um, when we do mission work locally, it is the responsibility of the individual Christian and he's doing it in some sense, he or she is doing it in some sense, disconnected from the corporate witness or the communal witness of the church. It becomes something that you do sort of on your own time. Um, and it's sort of uh, a way to recruit new members, perhaps, for the life of the church. But the body of the church, the communal witness of the church, doesn't really play a part except perhaps um, in an event capacity. You might would have an evangelistic event or a revival service, that kind of thing, and invite people to that event. But the idea of the church itself being on mission together, bearing witness together, um, while we might nod our heads about that idea, was not often brought up and certainly I don't think commonly understood. Um, but what we see in the scriptures over and over again is that public witness to the work of God, what God has done in Christ to forgive sins and secure eternal life, and then the ongoing work that God is doing in the world, still doing in the world, through the Spirit's employment of that proclamation, the finished work of Christ, is carried out by the church, um, the church corporate, the church collective, the church communal. So from Second Chronicles 6.6, 6, where we see that the Lord says the city will be the witness to his name, all the way to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 about being a city on a hill to bear witness to his name. The dominant picture in the Bible of missional witness is of God's people bearing witness together bearing witness together. Um, this doesn't negate the obligation to personal evangelism, but I think it shapes what that personal evangelism might look like. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow morning, the session tomorrow morning, of how our understanding of the gospel should shape the way that we present the gospel. Um, but this is why I think it's, it's particularly egregious to, tur to turn Jeremiah 29.11, for instance, one of the most famous verses, um, you know, you can get it on a coffee mug or on a, you know, Afghan at the Christian bookstore or, or what have you. We see Jeremiah 29:11, and we think this is about personal fulfillment. It's about, you know, God's plans for me, about my dreams coming true in some sense. But if you look at Jeremiah chapter 29, the, the entire chapter, just the context of what's taking place there. Verse 11 is in this context of, of um, God through the prophet telling the people who are living in exile, they're sort of in 
you know, under um, uh, Babylonian captivity, telling them to bear witness together um, for the welfare of the lost, for the welfare of those that they are, you know, in exile underneath or they're in oppression underneath. And in a way, he says, so seek their welfare. You're going to find your welfare and their welfare, which is not really how we read Jeremiah 29:11 when we take that verse out of the chapter. So the question remains, then, how do we do this? What does that look like um, doing like does that mean we just go out in big groups to do evangelism? Does that I mean, you know, is that the picture of a corporate witness? What does a co- collective communal church witness look like? Well, I think we see lots of pictures throughout the scriptures. But I want to point out one to you for a, a particular reason. I'll explain um, after we pray. But um, it's not a common reference. Like when you think of public witness, corporate witness to the gospel, you don't immediately go to Romans chapter 15. But I think we're going to find something really significant here. So let's begin reading in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Let's pray. We're going to ask the Father to send the Spirit to help us see the Son, um, the Son of God in this passage. Father, you are good and you are gracious. You are, um, if we can say it, too good for us. So uh, holy, so precious. We thank you that you have given us your word, first of all, that you would even speak to us. But that you would speak with such love, you would speak with such power. Uh, you would give us such hope in your gospel. And Father, we ask that that would be our takeaway um, this evening. That we would see your son in such a real way, um, tangible if we can even use that word, um, through the work of your spirit, that he would give us a vision of your son that is so satisfying, um, so exhilarating, so dizzying, um, that we would find all of our hope there and nowhere else, in your son and in nowhere else. We know we need your spirit to do this, and this is why we pray to you, because we are helpless to work this up ourselves. And so we ask that your word would not return void. It would find purchase in our hearts, not just in an informational or educational or religious way, but in a way that deepens our love for your son. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. In many respects, Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, can be seen as a great apologetic, actually, for mission works, specifically his mission to the Gentiles. So Paul Raised um, as a Jew, a good, faithful Jew, now doing this cross-cultural ministry, this um, cross-racial ministry to take the message that came out of the Jewish world, that came from the Jews, to take it across outside of the camp, so to speak. So for all that we see in the letter um, of Romans, for all that we see in terms of justification and um, God's covenantal faithfulness throughout history, and you see how he 
Um, he brings in the patriarchs, and uh, especially Abraham, and he begins to talk about Jacob and Esau, of course, and to show how um, the gospel was at work even then as God is laying the groundwork, um, as you see these big ideas of predestination and free will and all of that sort of thing. What Paul is finally aiming at, what he's finally trying to turn the corner to do, is to explain or have this apologetic or a rationale, a spiritual rationale for his zeal to preach the gospel outside of home base outside of the world of the Jews. Um, so we even see here in Romans chapter 15, um, it's a you know, succinct instruction to the people of God um, to bear witness to the gospel in some particular ways. But you'll notice that right after verse 7, if you have your Bible open, you'll notice he immediately launches into a proclamation of Christ's gospel um, and, and to say it's a missional gospel. In verse 9, he says, all of this must take place, quote, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Paul does not disconnect gospel from mission. In his mind, the gospel necessitates mission because in his mind, he would not believe in the gospel if God was not on mission himself to bring the gospel to him. So regardless of how you heard the gospel, maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you got saved there. So it's it's difficult for you to think in terms of someone evangelized me or witnessed to me from, you know, sort of outside of my culture or outside of my um, context really um, you were evangelized from outside of your culture because the gospel is a supernatural thing it comes from god on high that he would deign that he would condescend to send his son to come to sinful people so regardless of the context or the story of your testimony you are a christian because god was on mission in the world because the spirit was at work bringing the work of christ and you were swept up in this mission but those who are disinclined to this mission um, apparently needed all of that, you know, Romans 1 through 14, the big epic scope, the big proclamation of the gospel. They needed to know that their identity was in Christ. They needed to be sort of swept up in that this big panorama. And I don't know if you've spent much time in Romans, but um, it, it's, I mean, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's all inspired. It's all infallible. It's all, in, you know, authoritative. It's all inerrant. Yes. But isn't Romans like... A jewel of, I mean, like, uh, it's weird to call it a masterpiece as if it's, you know, the other scripture is lesser scripture, but there's something about Romans, the specialness of Romans. I've heard some say that the preaching of Romans has precipitated more revivals than the preaching of any other text that uh, was, as you pour into the letter, uh, um, to the Romans, something happens. We have a, a fellow in our church who did not grow up in a Christian home. Uh, he was into drugs, alcohol, sex, all sorts of things. And someone handed him a Bible, uh, a stranger who was witnessing to him, handed him a Bible. And as he was reading the Bible, he said it was Romans, Romans that jumped out at him, that that seemed different, that that spoke to him in a very deep way. And he said, I just kept reading Romans. I just kept reading Romans. And I didn't understand it all. But there was something about I got saved reading Romans. Now, of course, we understand that on a, a um, you know step by step basis maybe you've heard of the romans road and so you can take people to places in romans to show them the different aspects of the gospel but there's something about the story you know the big storyline that is there there's um, things about um cultural degradation especially in romans one and you see why are you know why is the culture the way that it is and paul gives a rationale for that but he's building up to this idea the idea that the church exists to bear witness to god's mission in the world to proclaim the gospel what Paul believes, what Paul thinks, um, 
for these people reading this letter, his original audience, his original readers, they need what he needed to, to have a vision of Christ that is just so interrupting, so apprehending, so hijacking of the way that he's going. They need to have that kind of vision to be able to go on the kind of mission that God is calling them to do. So I think um, the way that Paul was converted see this blinding vision, to see this great vision, to be confronted by God himself, to see Christ, to have that transforming vision. It colors all of the things that he teaches and preaches. It colors his mission. This is why he would say, I, res- I resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because he had tasted everything else, for instance, but in seeing this satisfying, supreme, sufficient vision of Christ, colored then the way, charged him in some way with how he began to um, carry on in his mission. And so he wanted to give them this great big scope. And you'll notice in every one of Paul's letters, even the short ones, he begins with gospel proclamation. He knows that to get to all the little practical matters of the faith, children obey your parents, husbands love your wives, all that sort of thing. He has to establish where the power to do those things comes from, where the identity to work out those things comes from. And so for Paul, it always begins with the gospel. And then the gospel always pushes us out into mission. Now, the same is true for us. He gave the Romans this great big letter, this great epic scope of the gospel so that they would understand, oh, this is why we go to the Gentiles. This is why mission exists. This is why the gospel exists for us as well. We can talk about mission all the live long day, but it will not result in us living mission until we have undergone a profound experience of the gospel. I think and I have learned that my personal evangelism, my zeal in being on mission myself is always tied to how in all of the gospel I am. Um, C.S. Lewis has some great things to say about we about about worship, about we naturally praise that which we find praiseworthy. So just as an example to kind of, you know, put it down on our level, you know, you see um, a movie, it makes you laugh. You see a movie, it makes you cry. You see, um, you know, uh, you hear a song that really moves you. You don't have to remind yourself to share about that. Um, you see something beautiful in the world now. It's like, you know, well, let me take a picture of that so everyone can see it. And you post it on there. Hashtag gorgeous or whatever it is. Why? Like no one has to tell you to do that. You do it because you just want people to see what you're seeing. You want to sh- you want them to share this experience. So now if we apply that to our evangelism, we apply that to our mission. What does it say about our reluctance or about our apathy about evangelism, about mission? I think it says, you know, maybe we're not as quite bowl over or as in awe or engaged with Christ as we think we are. Now, this isn't to make us feel condemned, to make us feel judged into anxiety, but it ought to make us go further into Christ and to look more closely at Christ. Ask him to help us in these ways. Um, I, I think this is why, for instance, in most churches, Missional zeal is contained really in a few souls that have been wakened to the all of the finished work of Christ. Um, My most um, avid evangelists tend to be people who didn't grow up in the church. Um, You know, there's a few exceptions, but most of them were evangelized themselves. They were like pulled out of their sinful lifestyles and they experienced just how transforming it was. And you can't get them to shut up about it. I mean, they have felt it. They have heard it in such a way that it's difficult for them to hem and haw about the gospel. To be embarrassed about the gospel. Um, so this is why I think, you know, in most of our churches, uh, we have a few what we would call gifted evangelists. Uh, maybe we have more than a few. 
but they end up serving in such a way like zealots compared to what we would call the normal Christians or the people who are normal in the church. But what happens then? See, I mean, here's the um, the logic would tell us then, OK, well, I, I need to be zealous. How, how do I, you know, is, is there a zeal switch that, you know, be, you know, I, when I first began talking about this idea called gospel wakefulness, um, people would ask me. And so I had to put it in in the book, address this question. I want that. How do I get it? And the problem is, like, I can't say, you and I can't say to anyone, be in awe of Jesus and have them say, oh, okay. <laughs> I'll be in awe of Jesus. You're either in awe of him or you're not. I mean, you, you, I mean it's like, you know, you have a taste for food, right? You, you taste something, it tastes good to you or it doesn't taste good to you. You, you, you know, you don't have to decide. Is, is this going to, you know, does this taste good? I'm, you know, I'm not sure. Sometimes you develop a taste for something. And so maybe there are some of us who need to develop more of a taste for the gospel, uh, for the awe of Christ. But there's nothing we can't just decide, okay? This makes it very difficult to preach because we want the steps. Tell me what I do. So I'm not going to give you the steps because I don't have them. Um, The step is the Spirit must do His work. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. But when the Spirit then does His work, and I think the Spirit does His work often when we are wanting this, it's a great step. When we're asking for it and when we're expecting it and when we might have a vision for what it might look like were it to happen. Okay. It hasn't happened. It's like revival in that sense. Right. So you want revival to happen, but you can't make revival happen. Um, But there's something about maybe a vision for revival that creates a hunger for it. And sometimes the spirit responds to that. So what would it look like? I think the first thing that we would see is this a gospel wakened church has a profound love for her neighbors. A gospel-wakened church has a profound love for her neighbors. So in verses 1 and 2, Paul says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. He's working out that great commandment, really, to love your neighbor as yourself. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Steve Timmis, who wrote a great little book called Total Church with a fellow named Tim Chester, uh, their pastors over in the UK. Steve Timmis, um, in sort of explicating this obligation, this, the obligation of the strong to bear with the failings of the weak, um, in a way that's very convicting, at least to me. And this is what he says. Jesus has said, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So Timus then begins to work out the implications of that and says this. If I'm not prepared to jeopardize a friendship so that I can tell others about Christ, I can be fairly certain I won't give up my life. If I'm not prepared to miss out on a promotion so I can stay and help plant churches, I can be fairly certain I wouldn't give up my life. If I'm not willing to pursue people who are different from me in order to bless them, I can be fairly certain I won't give up my life. If I refuse to give up a holiday abroad so I can support someone in gospel ministry, I can be fairly confident I won't give up my life. If I'm not prepared to give up my bed to go and serve someone, I can be fairly confident I won't give up my life. What Paul is aiming at here is not, um, you know, if I just pulled Timothy's words out, we would all feel very terrible, right? Maybe you feel terrible right now like I do. (laughs) But what 
in the context of the gospel, what we're supposed to see is this. The profound love that we would have for our neighbors is directly tied to the profound love that we feel from Christ. So the degree to which I'm willing to give up my life for my neighbors, the degree to which I am moved by Christ having given up his life for me. And so this presses us further into the grace of God, not into the law where we go, all right, I'll get out of bed. I'll make myself do it. Because that's not love. That's not a profound love. That's, you know, that's duty. That's, you know, there's no worship really in that of God. It just comes from checking off this religious checklist. But when it comes from the gospel, it comes from the reality that we've become so satisfied in Christ that we've despaired of ourselves and we consider ourselves dead already. Um, one of my favorite movies, The African Queen. Anyone seen this? It's, old, it's an older movie. Humphrey Bogart, um, Catherine Hepburn. You know, she's a missionary and he's this gruff, sort of salty sea captain, um, riverboat captain, and they're trying to escape um, the Nazis. And so they're coming down this river and he's trying to help her and um, there's a, a, a German boat waiting at the, at the mouth of the river. Essentially, they think even if we can get out of the jungle, we're, we're going to get killed, you know, at the end of the road anyway. So Catherine Hepburn's character says to um, Bogart's captain, uh, his character's name is Captain Allnut, says, don't be worried, um, Captain Allnut. And he says, oh, I ain't worried, miss. I gave myself up for dead when we started. And it's a great line, but it, it spoke to me in, in this context of mission as well. It's like, I'm not going to be worried about dying out there if I've considered myself dead in Christ. Hey, I consider myself dead when I started. And if I was dead when I started, I won't worry about being killed out on the mission field or, for most of us, just embarrassed. You know, I mean, they're not killing us. Now, there's two ways that we typically go about our relationships with our neighbors. We tend to position ourselves as consumers or alternatively, we position ourselves as combatants. As consumers, we end up using our communities for our own comfort and convenience, for our own prosperity. Um, our neighbors exist to be used, um, if not ignored. But when we relate to them, it's to receive something from them, to profit from them. It's for our own prosperity. Or at the same time, as we look at the surrounding culture, and the church finds itself in this minority position, uh, especially in New England, uh, which has already reached post-Christendom long ago. Um, the Bible Belt, I think, is heading that way. Certainly American culture is post-Christendom culture already. We look outside and we think, we better, we better circle the wagons here. We be, and we begin to have this antagonistic view. We begin to have this combatant view. We see the lost. We see people who are doing what lost people do as enemies. Um, enemies of us, not just of the gospel, but of us. And then, of course, this creates culture war, and we, every, almost every generation has its own version of the culture war. And we engage in that, and we never learn our lesson, because the next time it comes up, the next time it comes around, we think, we'll just do what we did last time. If we get the right people in the White House, the right people in, you know, the politicians' seats, then we'll really change this culture, and it, it never works. It has never worked. And yet we delude ourselves into thinking that it will over and over and over again. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be wise about who you vote for. It just means your trust should not be there. No law can change anyone's heart. So as we look at the outside world, we cannot look at them as, 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 as something to be consumed. We cannot look at them as someone to be 
um, in war with or in combat with. We certainly can't love somebody and use them at the same time or think of them that way at the same time. When Christ saw the crowd, he had compassion. They um, looked like sheep without a shepherd to him. He knew what their what the core re- reality was. This is why they're acting like that. Because they don't know me. Because they don't know God. Their heart has not changed. It is hard. They're in bondage to sin. And the compassion he felt wasn't this sort of pity, at least not in the sense that we usually think of pity. It was this visceral reaction. He was moved. That's the kind of love that he had. I think people who understand where they stand apart from Christ have a better sense, have a more profound love, a compassion like Christ did for the lost. Because you then look at a lost person and think, man, if it weren't for God, that would be me. And the reason they're like this is because they don't know God. If the grace of God had not captured me, I I, I would be just as worse off. And we begin doing the sort of moral calculus to say, well, I didn't do those things. You know, I, 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 I certainly didn't engage in that kind of behavior. But it misses the entire point of the gospel, which reminds us that religious people go to hell every day. It's not good and bad. There is Christ and the lost. You must have your heart changed by the grace of God to find yourself enjoying God forever. This does not come from ourselves. Love means serving and serving means embracing what Paul calls our obligation. It's not even an option. An obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This is so upside down. I mean, it reminds me of the Beatitudes in some way. The meek will inherit the earth. Christ is turning these things over so that those who step on people, who step over people, who use people, who exploit people, who leverage people for their own good, for their own prosperity, find themselves in the end on the bottom. To where Paul would say, man, those who are failing, those who are weak, if you are strong in Christ, your obligation is to bear with them, to be patient with them, to build them up, to seek their good. In a way, this is an echo of Jeremiah chapter 29 that we referred to earlier, where the Lord instructs the people living under Babylonian culture to seek the welfare of the Babylonian people. With the promise that they would find their own welfare and the welfare of the Babylonians. Can you imagine what our cities might look like or communities, neighborhoods might look like if our churches loved those communities like they loved their own bodies? This happens when a church is drinking so deeply of God's love in the gospel that they're experiencing the spirit. It's like the Holy Spirit comes and just uncorks all of the barrels of the gospel wine and just spills out of the church into the streets. It can't help but do that. Secondly, a gospel wakened church makes a resolution to look foolish. The gospel wakened church makes a resolution to look foolish. For Christ, verse 3, did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. Now, for most of us, the preaching of the gospel is not in season. Maybe you live in a, a, an area, a pocket, you know, some neighborhood, community or city where the gospel seems to be spreading at an advanced rate. People seem more receptive than they used to be. But for most of us, we're in a place where it's just hard going. They don't care. They're not listening. 
we're, you know, the churches in, in their minds, like the flat earth society. You know, this is, it's part of a bygone time and they'll just be glad when we're just gone, when every church building is a antique store or a community center or a coffee shop or anything but a place where those Christians go or those evangelical Christians go. And so to proclaim the gospel just looks silly and stupid and backwards. We are, according to the culture, despisers of the conventionally holy and the traditionally faithful on, this is a phrase that keeps coming up, we're on the wrong side of history. A church not infatuated with Christ's finished work then begin to fear those words and acquiesce, accommodate, start shave off, you know, shaving off those rough edges. I think this is what Many Christian churches did historically in New England, which is why we are the least churched region of the nation now. Began to give way, began to sort of compromise. The gospel left the pulpits. And the pews then, the ones that remained full, were full of people who didn't care about the gospel. They just liked the community spirit or they wanted a religious pep talk or some inspirational message. Um an admiration of Jesus, but not really an awe of him or a trust in him. The church that is deaf to the gospel is allergic to embarrassment. It's afraid of looking stupid or foolish. Um, they like the, the the Jesus who seems cool, who seems down with the culture, but they're unwilling to be identified with the Jesus who took upon himself physically and emotionally all of the hatred of God that exists in the universe. That Christ would say, let the earth's hatred of God, let the people's hatred of God fall on me. And then in doing so, he also absorbs God's hatred. The wrath of God poured out to crush him on the cross, which is itself thought stupid. So the progressive Christians or whatever they're calling themselves these days, the emergent church, whatever that's become. This, the idea of penal substitution, the idea that, that Christ took God's wrath, you know, it's child abuse, it just, it's embarrassing. It doesn't sound pleasing. It doesn't matter what the Bible says, and where we find the text, we say, well, that's, did God actually say? Is that really what it says? And every time we hear that, you ought to hear the little serpent hiss in there. Is that, is that what God really said? And it turns out that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And so when those in the in the church who identify as Christians begin to think the message of the cross is foolish, that's a real gut check, a time to test oneself to see whether they are in the faith. But that message, that foolish message, that scandal of the cross, that people just sort of block off, people who have heard the message of the gospel over and over and over again, if you ask them, hey, what's the message of the church? They will say, well, be a good person. And maybe because that's what they've heard, but I think for a lot, it's sort of like they've just blocked out that cross stuff, the gospel stuff. And they just want to sort of merge Christianity in with all of the good vibes so that they can say then, I can do that without the church. I can do that without Jesus. That foolish message, though, is the power of the gospel. It's the power of salvation. So we have to ask ourselves, 
Will we be so bold to follow the gospel wherever it takes us? And when we've been transformed by the gospel, we'll become more willing to do that. When we're in awe of the gospel, you almost can't stop us from doing that. Many Christians will stand up for truth so long as standing up for truth simply means, you know, a good gospel tweet or posting a link to something on Facebook. Or We like it when other people stand up for Christ and then we'll point at that. But look how bold that person was. But when claiming the truth of Christ and his gospel, being sold out for the grace of God and Christ alone, when it comes to that, many of us shrink back because the conflict, the questions, the division, we fear being marginalized or ostracized. We fear being insulted or just not being included or being looked at sideways. But this is what Christ-centeredness has always done. This isn't a new thing. So when Jesus comes and says, don't think I've come to bring peace, this is the Prince of Peace talking, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. He says explicitly to us, I'm going to divide families. Husbands and wives will be at odds because of me. Fathers and children will be at odds because of me. He knows that his message that unites people who love him are going to. It's going to cause this great divide, a great discord. There's going to be great conflict. Because of him. Jesus will even divide churches sometimes. I think given what is taking place in the world today, do we have any indications that to follow Christ will become more and more comfortable? Even this Bible Belt, this is the culture that I grew up in and came out of. It's, it's, it's interesting because I get asked a lot, is it harder ministry in New England than it is in, down south? And it's, it's equally hard. It's just hard in different ways. So I prefer New England, and here's why, because there aren't people who are convinced they're Christians who, well, there are, but by and large, the people who don't are interested in Christianity, they know they're not interested in Christianity. They'll say, yeah, I'm not interested in that. Or yes, I've heard that, or, you know, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not religious and that sort of thing. Down south, where Christianity is cultural, it's almost like there's, you know, it's like the synthetic version that everyone has. So you have to actually work through people's false sense of security in Christ because they've adopted or they have some faith that they've inherited from their parents or from whatever church they were a member of when they were a child. But all of us, it seems, if we're just looking historically, it seems that we're heading towards the cultural ruins of post-Christendom. Cultural Christianity is wasting away. There is no moral majority anymore. There's, I mean, there's a very moralistic majority now, but it's on the other side. The outside world is becoming more and more hostile to the things of faith. And if God is doing anything in ordaining these cultural shifts to come to pass, and I use that word specifically, purposefully, um, you know, this stuff's not happening like outside of God's sovereignty. It's not like he's going, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. I really need the ideal situations in which to work. He, he, he knew our culture would be like this. If he's doing anything in this, one thing he may be doing is sifting the real Christians from the false ones. And when he does that, this is interesting because we're afraid of becoming this minority. When he does that, the church actually will get healthier and stronger. Maybe he's sifting out his churches that his 
capital C church might rise up. I see an example of what may be taking place in the world today and some of the things we see in the news headlines with John the Baptist. Um, He's a a really good example for us, I think. He said to Herod, it's not right that you have your brother's wife. He spoke to the sexual immorality and the power structures. And he got beheaded for it. In the end, speaking truth to power about sexual immorality is not popular today either. We're not being beheaded for it. Just shouted at or insulted. Why would John risk his life? Why would he do that? Well, he was willing to go as far as the gospel would take him. I, I find, this is just a side note, but I love that as John is in, in, in prisons, he sends message to ask Jesus, are you really the one? <laughs> I like that. This is the man, by the way, Jesus said, the greatest man born of woman. So I'm, I'm assuming beside himself. <laughs> And I'm thinking, if, you know, if that guy, the one who would say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who was so convinced while in jail is like, well, let me check. That's helpful to me to know that. But while things were heating up and getting worse, John was not willing to back down. He was willing to follow the truth no matter where it took him, even to his death. And so what we need today, what the culture needs, actually, are Christians, bold Christians, bold enough to love people enough to disappoint them. To love them enough to hurt their spiritual feelings. Willing to lovingly address their eternal danger. Even if it upsets their self-righteous sensibilities. What we need are Christians so in worshipful awe of Jesus Christ that they can spot the counterfeit gospel in seconds and call it out. What we need are churches so committed to Christ that they will go to their crosses. We need churches so aligned with God that we take the scorn that is heaped on him. We're willing to be thought foolish. If it's good enough for God, it's good enough for us. If Christ was willing to take the reproaches, then I will be willing to take the reproaches. Thirdly, the gospel-wakened church is committed to the sufficiency of God's word. The gospel-wakened church is committed to the sufficiency of God's word. It's like you found this fountain in the desert. That's what the Bible is. Um, the living, you know, the living water of the gospel, it is Christ that is the sustenance. We don't worship the scriptures, but it's in the scriptures. This is the fountain of which Christ is found, or uh, as Martin Luther says, the Bible, the scriptures are the cradle in which Jesus is laid. It, it's as if we're just, we're hungering, we're, we're thirsting, we're dying. And God gives us this book that has this life in it, this bread in it. And when you have it, and someone stands over here and says, well, what about this thing? We say, are you kidding me? No, this is the thing. The Word of God is it. We will not depart from the Word of God. We have found it so satisfying, so sufficient, so authoritative, so life-giving, so water-giving, so bread-giving. We're not going to go anywhere else. So this is what Paul says in verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I think part of the endurance was being trained by those things written in former days to look for the hope of Christ. It's as if, you know, the old, what we call the Old Testament, what they just called the Bible, you know, um, or, you know, the scriptures, God's word. What we call the Old Testament is as if 
it's like a dim room and there's all these things in the room. And it's like at night, you know, and you're laying in bed and you're thinking, is that someone in the corner? You know, what is that? You flick on your light and it's the coat rack, right, with a hat on it or whatever it is. That's the Old Testament. Then the light comes on. And you look back and go, oh, that's what all that was about. So after his resurrection, Jesus, you know, sidles up next to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it says he began to tell them everything about himself, beginning with the law and the prophets. He, I mean, he went through the Old Testament, probably the best Christ-centered expository sermon ever preached. You know, I wish it was in the Bible. Like I wish it told us everything he said. It would help a lot in preaching the Old Testament. And the result of that, later the disciples say, did not our hearts burn within us? He turned the light on for them. And this is kind of what Paul's talking about, because he's just given them this big epic scope of history in Romans, you know, in the chapters leading up to this. It's like he's turning on the light in each room. This is what that was about. This is what that was about. This is what this was about. And as you have endured, as God has been faithful to you, and so you have patiently persevered, you find in these scriptures, in God's word, you have this encouragement that gives you this great big hope. And so to stick with God means to stick with his word and not to depart from it, to know that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. But this is not how many of us were trained to teach. You know, as I look out at, um, well, especially where I am in Vermont, you can take all these different rural roads and see all these little white, you know, I have, a, you know, the traditional looking white steeple church on the town green, that kind of thing. And I love those places. But sometimes when I learn what's going on in them or what's not going on in them, it reminds me of the valley of dry bones. It's like these are these bones from Ezekiel's vision. And it takes me back then to what Ezekiel was asked as I look at some of these churches and look at some of these towns. The Lord says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? And so, you you know, think of the places around you. And then ponder this question, can this, place, can this place live again? It's been a long time since there was anything cool for Christ happening around here. Can this place live again? Well, if you have the right strategy, if you have the right techniques, if you have the right speakers. No, the Lord does not say to Ezekiel, because this is what Ezekiel says to uh, in response. He does not say, of course they can. I went to seminary. I mean, people enjoy the way that I talk. No, he says, Lord, you know. I I, I don't know, but you know. And the Lord doesn't say, well, chastise the bones. Crack the whip over those bones. He says, prophesy over the bones. Say to them, hear the word of the Lord. Is this not a lesson to us that of all of the techniques, all of the strategies, all of the formulas, all of the rhetoric that we can come up with, all the expertise? We think if we just get the experts in here and Christianity did not not spread because of experts, it spread because of converts. The spirit was doing something powerful through ordinary people. Rough around the edges, people who just loved Jesus. But they were content, not just content, but satisfied in love with the external word of God. 
And so a gospel awakened church knows where the truth is and the truth is in God's word. But we have to handle it and we have to preach it as if it is sufficient, as if there aren't any other options, as if God's word alone holds the hope of our souls and of the souls of our neighbors. So we can't come to it like I was sort of taught to preach when I began in ministry, as if it's like a book of illustrations or Bartlett's book of quotations or something like that. So this is how I was taught to preach. Come up with, you know, a felt need you want to address, a topic that you want to address. And then come up with some points, practical things that speak to that topic. Um, so, you know, you want people to um, to love their neighbor. So here's how to be a, a loving neighbor. Well, here's five steps to being a loving neighbor. And then after you have your steps, you find Bible verses that go under each step. And it was trickier in those days. It was a little harder to work in those days because, you know, the Internet was around, but we weren't really using that. I mean, so there was no Bible gateway or anything like that. You know, you got your concordance open. You're like looking for the word that you're using in the point in the Bible. And if you can't find it in one translation, use another translation. And as I look back, I'm thinking, okay, what was happening then? Here's what was happening. I was making the Bible serve what I wanted to say rather than having what I say serve the Bible. So I don't know what you think about the way preaching should be done or that sort of thing, but even when we do a topical series or topical sermons or topical teaching, the Bible has everything that's worth knowing um, said about all the ideas, topics we can think of. But there are texts to look at. There are passages to look at, ways to treat the Bible that reveal what we think about the Bible. And so if we treat the Bible like, a, you know, this sort of um, bowl of fortune cookies, we're not going to be training people to see that we really trust this. What we're training them to think is we admire this. But the important stuff is what what we say. When Jesus is at the mouth of Lazarus's tomb, he didn't offer him a set of steps or tips. He simply called him out. Come forth. And the corpse obeyed, came to life. That tells us something about the word of God. What was written in former days was written for our instruction. And in, in some sense, it's like in Galatians where he says the law is our tutor or our schoolmaster. It's training us to yearn for Christ. And the scriptures are encouraging us to hope in Christ alone. So we have to preach the word of God as sufficient because it is. And we have to preach the word as if it points to Christ because it does. The fourth thing is this. A gospel awakened church lives in Christ centered harmony. A gospel awakened church lives in Christ centered harmony. I'd like to teach the world to sing. Some of you are too young to remember that. But classic Coke commercial. That's what I think whenever I hear the word harmony. Perfect harmony. People holding hands in a wheat field or whatever. I don't remember what it was, but, you know, sway hands across America or whatever it is. That's the the worldly picture of what really we're what we're longing for. That we would live in peace together. That the world would look like it once looked like before the fall. Perfect relational intimacy, transparency, love between each other. That comes from having perfect intimacy and transparency and relationship, love with the Lord. The world knows that it needs that. Not specifically that it needs it from God. But really all the stuff that we're just working out, a lot of the stuff that's going on in the culture, is a sort of response to that, that image of God that's broken in us. 
We want to be known. We want someone to, I mean, what's all the selfies about? Right? And there's something for the younger folks. You know, I do the Coke thing for the older folks, and we'll do selfies for the younger. What's that all about? Are we going to forget what we look like? Are we afraid someone's going to forget what we look like? I, I, I think it's tied directly into this. I, I just want someone to know me. Just, just to see me. And this is the only way I can think to work. And it's not conscious. This is the only way I can think to work this out. That somebody would see me, for young women especially, that someone would see me, know me totally, and think that I'm lovely. That I can be approved of. known in, And this is what men are longing for as well. We work it out in different ways, but we want someone to know us totally and yet say, I approve of you. And it's only in the gospel that we get that. That God knows us better than we know ourselves. That God would say, I know every terrible thing you've thought and done, and I know every terrible thing that you're going to do and that you're going to think about doing, and I love you eternally. So in all of the fracture and all of the brokenness in the world, it's a longing for that. That someone would know us and then love us. And when a church is captivated by the gospel, it begins to work that out among each other. People begin to confess sin. A little tentatively at first, but it begins to come out. They're testing the waters. Something happens when grace takes over a church. There's a sweetness. There's a palpable kindness. A gentleness that begins with each other. The people are captivated with what the gospel actually says. Not just with the words or the rhetoric or the formula. But the, it's, it's sunk in. It's changed them. So that Paul would say in verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. In accord with Christ Jesus. So in harmony with Christ, in accord with Christ, creates this harmony, this accord with each other. Endurance and encouragement, those are the words that he just used in relation to the scriptures, but it's a picture of how we live with each other as well. So that when someone hurts us, someone wrongs us, or someone's just a little too messy, we endure with them. We don't go, oh, this is, I, I, I can't do this right now or ever. I like my life tidy. But we endure, we encourage. Why? Because Christ didn't look at us and go, I can't do this right now. And he has reason to do that every second of every day about every one of us. You think that when you wake up in the morning, why are the mercies new? Because you are ready to sin newly. So picture, as you wake up in the morning, Christ isn't standing there going, all right, here we go. This guy again. He's smiling. He's looking down going, this guy. Yes, this guy. A church needs to experience a unity of doctrine, yes. But also the harmony that that doctrine ought to produce. The gospel truth that is lovingly and consistently applied creates, cultivates a gospel culture. So when people come into our churches with no church background or they've been burned by their church experience in the past and they've got that guard up and maybe we don't even have those experiences, but we just always have our guard up, some sort of face on. We walk into a place, especially into a church, and we're just thinking, you know, what's going to happen here? What's this going to be like? You know, the teeth are clenched. 
You're looking around. You're holding your breath. As our visitors come in, they're taking in more than just the musical style and the sermon's listenability. I mean, those are requirements of those who are accustomed to church culture, usually. Those things might matter to people who don't have church backgrounds or who are coming to a church for the first time. Those things might matter to them, but they're not necessarily deal breakers. What they're looking for is, if someone knows me, what are they going to say about me? Or what are they going to think about me? Because they probably won't say it, but what are they going to think about me? They want to know, just like we want to know, and the Lord wants to know, that what is being preached, what is being taught, what is being studied, has sunk down through the hardness of our hearts and our skulls into the bloodstream. That we are not puffed up with spiritual knowledge, but we're humbled by it and animated by it. That those who are pursuing holiness, right, I just want to be more holy. That those who pursue holiness are on the converging track with the pursuit of joy. So that sometimes those who we think or who themselves think are most holy have the least amount of joy. And that that doesn't happen. You don't grow in holiness and not in joy. And so you're looking out and you see, OK, he's, here are the smart people. Here are the holy people. Here are the people who have it together. Has the message of grace sunk in? Have they taken it to heart? Have they laid it to heart? A phrase we see throughout the scriptures. As more people begin to testify to the kindness of God in their lives, they start dropping the pretense of what Don Whitney calls um, justification by sola bootstrapa. You know, we don't walk around like we earned this. Like the gospel is a merit badge. We confess our sins. And when we confess our sins, right, someone's just going to put a little one out there. Let me see what they do with this. Put it out there. And the response is love and understanding. Not for the sin, but for the person who's confessing. And those who are in leadership positions, pastors and those uh, elders, deacons, those who are teaching, those who are leading groups, You have to go first with this because you're setting the tone. Don't wait for somebody else to go. You show right off the bat. You have the most to lose in this situation. So you're going to put it out there. You may lose admiration from some people in the group, but you're going to gain it from those who are hungriest for the gospel. They're going to say, oh, if he can say that. That means I can say this. Messy people begin to own their own stuff. And the church becomes an unsafe place for sin, but a very safe place for sinners. People have the freedom in these environments to question their leaders. Not in divisive way or accusatory way. But in a real way, in an honest way, without the leader saying that can't happen here. You never question me. People have the freedom to disagree with their pastor. People have the. Freedom to hold opposing views with each other on secondary matters without distrust or rancor. The gospel begins binding people together in spite of these differences. Creates harmony with all of these different notes. A culture of grace oxygenates the air. People, they can breathe here. I I can drop the pretense. I can be myself here. People are helpful here. They're going to love me here. Now, this scares people who believe God has delegated his sovereignty to them. But it honors the gospel of Jesus because it's in Jesus that there is no condemnation. 
It's in Jesus that we are all being built together. Here's the fifth thing. The gospel awakened church is alive with worship. The gospel awakened church is alive with worship. Verse six, that together. Together, you may with one voice glorify the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Together, all of you with one voice glorify the God and father of our Jesus Christ. Now, it certainly speaks to the importance of worship music, but that's not what Paul's talking about. He's using these music words, harmony, one accord, one voice, as if it's like a congregational worship experience. But he's not talking about music. It applies to that, but that's not what he's talking about. It's more than that. He's using these musical words to talk about the worship that should encompass all of life. That all of life is worship. You're never not worshiping. John Calvin says our heart is an idol factory. That worship switch, that is always on. You're always worshiping something. So whatever you're looking at to trust in, to find your satisfaction and your happiness and your fulfillment in, that in that moment is your God. You have asked whatever this thing is into your heart. And so what Paul is saying is the gospel helps us to repent of this idolatry that we are constantly tempted to. And to see Christ as all satisfying we're going to end up worshiping our way into sin. And so we have to worship our way out of it. Repentance is an act of worship. And here he's talking about mission as worship. This corporate witness, this togetherness, this communal testimony to the goodness, the grace, the reality of the gospel is an act of worship. Since Christian worship is giving glory to God rather than to anything else, glory um, you know, to glorify something is to ascribe worth to something, to um, affirm all the weightiness, uh, weightiness of its uh, of its attributes. So you're glorifying something. So to glorify God then is to is to acknowledge that He is God, that everything about Him is good. And since Christian worship is giving glory to God, all of life is worship. In fact, our mission is an act of worship. And our mission must have worship as its aim. One of the most famous lines of contemporary uh, missional thinking comes from John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He says, mission exists because worship does not. So just to sort of explain what he's saying is you're you're looking out at the world, wherever it is, maybe your neighborhood or maybe you know across the ocean. And you're saying there is a place where people do not glorify God consciously, explicitly, intentionally. That is a place where worship of God does not exist. That place should have worship of God because God's plan is that the entire earth would be covered with the knowledge of his glory like the waters cover the sea. We get this from Habakkuk chapter 2. So that's God's vision for the world. He wants the whole world to glorify him. So in the missional enterprise, we're looking across it. Well, there's no worship there. So we're going to be on mission there so that there will be worship there of God. That's the purpose of mission, to plant worship. But the impetus to go on that mission, to plant worship, is itself an act of worship. Worship produces this mission. And the mission is itself an act of worship. I think one of the best examples that we see in this is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has that just crushing vision of the glory of God in, in, in the temple. 
You know, he just, he, he feels broken. He, he despairs of himself. Woe is me. And then he's atoned for. And he's glorifying God. And the very next thing that happens is, who will go for us? Whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. That, that experience of glory had to happen for that missional impulse then, for that availability, for that self-abandonment to take place. Gospel-centered mission does not begin with leadership skills. It doesn't begin with leadership strategies. It begins with gospel exaltation. And gospel-wakened worship does not begin with the right song order. It begins with the gospel itself. This is why, for instance, um, at our church, we have a call to worship. Maybe you have one at, at, at your church. Before we sing any songs, we have a reading from the Scripture. And at the end of that reading, as you know, tradition dictates, we say something like, this is the word of the Lord. And the reason we do that is not just so that we, you know, we look traditional or we have this sort of sense of liturgy or what, whatever it is. What we're trying to um, reveal, what we're trying to... Um, depict for the people who are gathered is this the lord summons us to worship with his word we're not bringing god here he is bringing us here and all of the worship that we work up is in response to his word we could not worship if it weren't for his word so when the word of god goes out we say god is saying this to us now this is the word of the lord then we can sing our songs oh thus saith the lord i'm going to worship in response to that Another great example is Moses, as the Lord is calling him through the burning bush and asking him to go to Pharaoh and um, demand the release of God's people. Moses asks a series of questions, you know, who am I? Who are you? You know, all these questions. And the Lord does not say, look, Moses, I gave you such incredible gifts. I've trained you so well. I've given you a great education. All of your experiences. He didn't say any of those things. Moses, you're a great guy. Who else would I pick? I mean, that's what we want God to say to us. I think that's what Moses wanted God to say to him. But in essence, if you're looking at God's response, it sort of reads like this. Who cares who you are? I am who I am. I'll be with you. I made your tongue. My presence will be there. So, yes, as John Piper says, worship exists because worship does not. I mean, Mission exists because worship does not, but also mission exists because worship does. One of the things that we see in the book of Acts as the church is spreading and they're just going on this crazy, I mean, just like it has this life of its own. The work that they're doing, we see this phrase, all came upon every soul. Or First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. There is a vision of Christ that is compelling, that is propulsive. As I said, I think it affects Paul's mission. His vision directly drives what he is doing. What he saw is driving what he's doing. Leslie Newbegin in his book, Gospel in a Pluralist Society, says this, mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is more like the fallout from a vast explosion. A radioactive fallout, which is not lethal, but life-giving. I would say, though, it is, it is lethal to 
the powers of darkness. The gospel comes in and it shatters strongholds and establishes sinners who are trusting in God with eternal life. From front to back, the church's mission is worship. Consider now the famous story of the Moravian missionaries as told by Paris Reedhead. And some of you may be familiar with this. You can actually hear him. I won't be able to recreate it. I'm going to read what he said. But you can go on YouTube, look up Paris Reedhead, Moravian missionaries, and hear him doing it. It's one of the most powerful things that I've ever heard. Reedhead, who was a missionary himself, says this. Two young Moravians heard of an island in the West Indies where an atheist British owner had 2,000 to 3,000 slaves. And the owner had said, no preacher, no clergyman will ever stay on this island. If he's shipwrecked, we'll keep him in a separate house until he has to leave. But he's never going to talk to any of us about God. I'm through with all of that nonsense. 3,000 slaves from the jungles of Africa brought to an island in the Atlantic, there to live and die without hearing of Christ. Two young Moravians heard about it. They sold themselves to the British planter and used the money they received from their sale, for he paid no more than he would for any other slave, to pay their passage out to his island, for he wouldn't even transport them. As the ship left its pier in the river at Hamburg and was going out into the North Sea, carried with the tide, the Moravians had come from Herrenhut to see these two lads in their early 20s off. Never to return again, for this wasn't a four-year term. They had sold themselves into lifetime slavery. The families were there weeping, for they knew they would never see them again. And they wondered why they were going and questioned the wisdom of it. Think of it. Your child has done this. I mean, wouldn't you be like, you know, God could reach them another way. Why, why are you doing this? There would be such angst there. There's questioning. As the gap widened and the housings had been cast off and were being curled up there on the pier and the young boy saw the widening gap, one lad with his arm linked through the arm of his fellow raised his hand and shouted across the gap the last words that were heard from them. And they were these. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Not, we will note, we wanted to be radical We wanted to use our gifts. We wanted to please God and earn his favor. But instead, may the Lamb of God receive the reward of his suffering. That's a cry of worship. It is adoration. It is a glorifying of God. Their mission was the very result of being so satisfied in Christ that they reckoned themselves dead in Christ and alive to Christ that they would sell themselves into slavery to go bring Christ to people who would never hear of him otherwise. And we will note to identify with people who weren't like them. To be put in the same shackles as those people and to die with them. Lastly, the sixth thing is this. The gospel wakened church will glory in this gospel. The gospel wakened church will glory in this gospel. This is another piece of the worship angle. And this would seem to go without saying Because gospel-wakened people are wakened not just by the gospel, but to the gospel. They've lost their taste for any other message, for any other offering or promise. Christ alone has satisfied them, and they won't be satisfied with anything but Christ. I remember sitting in a church that we were a part of that sometimes wouldn't even mention the name of Jesus in a sermon. I don't think they realized that. The preacher didn't realize that. 
If he wasn't in a text where Jesus was, and he wasn't preaching a text anyway, but there's just no, there was no Jesus there. But my wife and I had undergone this deep, profound brokenness that destroyed our marriage. And we were transformed by the grace of Christ out of that experience, for me out of depression, out of suicidal thoughts. Our reconciliation was so borne by the gospel that we found nothing else even barely interesting. And so week after week to hear a gospel deficient message in the very place that should be proclaiming the gospel. We began to wither. We wanted to be respectful, we wanted to be peaceable, so we didn't make a stink, but we had to leave as I thought about raising my children in a place where. The gospel was not of first importance. Paul says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For the glory of God, not just so that they will think, oh, you're a really nice person. But so that they will say, God must be a really great God if you would welcome me like you were welcomed by him. The opportunities to mess up increase when we take our eyes off of Jesus. And this is especially dangerous in churches because we're doing the religious thing. Sometimes using, I mean, we're using the Bible. And so we don't understand that to be off Christ is to actually be off message. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I've resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, this message I delivered to you, I delivered it as if it was of first importance. This is the most important thing. And so what Paul is doing to highlight the gospel, to help to tell them to welcome each other as Christ has welcomed them, is telling tell them to say, remember the gospel and live it out so that God will get such glory. And he knows, as we established in the beginning of our talk, that they can't just say, OK, I'll do that. And so he prays that it will happen. Verse five, may God. Right. That's our indication that he's saying. God has to do this. He has to make you like this. Paul knows that this unity and all that comes from it must come from God if it's going to come at all. So the gospel awakened church understands that the power for mission comes from God himself working through the gospel itself. The churches themselves are formed by the power of the gospel. We exist together because of what Christ has done. And this truth should humble us and embolden us at the same time. It humbles us because we know that we aren't saving people. Christ is. Be very careful about the way you track numbers and announce numbers. That you're not inadvertently taking the credit for something that maybe isn't happening, but at least if it is happening, it's happening by the work of God and not by your work. The fact that the Lord uses us does not mean that we are necessary. He could just as easily use somebody else. But this message should embolden us as well. It should humble us, but it should embolden us because we know that if we will labor in getting the gospel truth out with our mouths and labor in making it look true with our lives, the Lord will do what he's always done with it. Let us leave the results to him. The message, Paul says in Colossians, is going into the world. It's bearing fruit and growing as if it is a force unto itself. It works through us, yes, but it works in spite of us. The gospel does the work. The Holy Spirit works through the good news 
And that's the only power that we have. One of the greatest reminders that I have of this is a fellow in our church. His name is Stephen. And I met Stephen his first Sunday in our church a couple of years ago. Um, His first Sunday morning in our church was his first Sunday morning in church in about 44 years. So when he was 18 years old, he left the Catholic church that he had grown up in, turned his back on all of that, just didn't want to have anything to do with that. But as he began to get older and in his early 60s, began to think more spiritual thoughts, began to hunger more spiritually. And he has a brother um, who lives out in California who's a believer. And his brother's been praying for him and praying for him and praying for him and telling him, you need to go to church. You need to find a church near you. Well, Stephen began to listen to preachers on the radio. He listened to um, D. James Kennedy and some other folks that were on the local Christian radio stations. And that was his church. One day... Stephen Stephen was hired by this other fellow in our church. His name is Bruce. I need to tell you about Bruce to tell you about Stephen. Bruce is a former Jehovah's Witness uh, who began coming to our church about three years ago. Um, Bruce is still not a believer. Um, He he knows that he's rejecting Jehovah's Witness theology, but he's not quite sure where he is. And so the the questions we have, the theological discussions that we have, usually center on the, the doctrine of the Trinity, on the deity of Christ, that sort of thing. He's not there yet. But he likes the Bible. He likes the people of our church. He feels welcomed there. So he's been coming very faithfully every Sunday, hearing the message of the gospel. Well, Bruce hired this fellow named Stephen to do this work on his property. Stephen's kind of a journeyman carpenter, forestry guy. He does all sorts of things. And Stephen's on the property cutting trees and cutting limbs for Bruce. And Stephen's telling him about his spiritual journey and saying, you know, my brother wants me to go to a church, but, you know, I don't know what what to do. I don't know how to pick a church. I haven't been in church in 44 years. And Bruce says to him, well, you should come to this church that I've been going to in Middletown Springs. I think that you would like it. The people there are nice. So Stephen comes to our church. I baptized him last summer. He hasn't missed a Sunday since he started coming. That's a better track record than me. Um, He comes early to every men's discipleship group. He is eating up. He is so eager. He's so curious. He has a list of questions. He's read through the Bible three times now, and he's doing these daily devotions that always produce questions for him. He's always throwing me for a loop because he'll come in and be like, okay, so Mephibosheth, he was the father. And I'm like, I don't even remember that name, Stephen. I have to, I'll have to get back to you. You know, he, he has, but he's just this insatiable desire. Stephen is in our church because of a former Jehovah's Witness. Who's not a believer. So. This is not a strategy that you and I would have come up with. (laughs) Right. Like none of us is going to sit around with our elder board and go, you know, who's an untapped resource for evangelism. (laughs) The watchtower. Even if we could come up with this strategy, there's no I mean, it wouldn't work. But it's a reminder to me that the spirit is doing these really unusual things to bring the children of the father home it's one of the frustrating things about the holy spirit you can't control him we had a young couple come into our church for a few years he was in nursing school Uh, husband was a believer the wife was not we prayed often i prayed with him so often for the conversion of his wife he wanted his wife to be saved after about a year at our church they had to move away uh, moved back home to arizona One day I got a message from him to say, good news. Randy made a profession of faith. She's a believer now. And I confess to you, my first thought, I didn't say this to him. My first thought was, why didn't she get saved at my church? (laughs) You know, she heard the message. 
we were praying for. It's a reminder. You, the Spirit has His own timing. I think of this married couple who were not churchgoers, but were relatives of some who are, and both of them were on their deathbeds at the same time in different places. He in the hospital, she in a nursing home. And I went and sat by their bedsides and shared the gospel with both of them. As far as I can tell, she had a, an honest, a legitimate, a credible profession of faith. She received the gospel, at least professed that she did. And he did not. Went out of this world in essentially the same way that he lived in this world, shaking his fist at God. Not interested in that. I don't, I don't need that. You would think if anyone is most ripe to even hedge their bets, even make a, like a, you know, a, a pathetic profession of faith. It would be somebody who's about to die, who thinks maybe I should think about this. But no, he was as resolute as he ever was. And I say, why, Lord? I mean, I didn't share it any differently. Why did one receive and the other not? And the Holy Spirit reminds us, he said, I'm not a formula. We learn in the scriptures, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who was born of the spirit. This is why we should never advertise revival. The minute you schedule it, it doesn't happen. <laughs> it's kind of like the end times. Whenever they pick a date, I'm like, oh, don't do that. Now he's not going to come on that day. You know, <laughs> if you hadn't have said it, he might have come that day. You can't put out on a sign revival this weekend. I think the Lord laughs at that. Oh, you think so? He's he's not wearing our watch. Or about Acts 2.43, all came upon every soul. My friend Ray Ortland says, that's not something you can put in the worship bulletin. 10 a.m., worship and song. 10.30, all comes down. <laughs> now, the frustrating thing about the Holy Spirit is that you cannot control him. But the wonderful thing about the Holy Spirit is that you cannot control him. There is no heart too hard. There is no soul too cold. There is no situation so bleak. There's no spirit to imprison. There's no life too dead for the God of the universe. The Holy Spirit is still roaming the earth, seeking whom he may revive. And he will continue to do so. And this includes our churches. So I think we need to put this vision out there. It may not be. It's not happening in my church. I mean, there's the gospel is having a sweetening effect to people who were already sweet. But it's it's affecting us. It's, but we're not, we're not experiencing revival. Our church isn't as, you know, gospel wakened. But we keep putting the message out there. We keep putting it out there. We keep seeding it as from front to back. We press the gospel into every corner of the room, from children's ministry to the counseling office. Everything that we put out there, we want people to see. It is Christ and the finished work of Christ, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection. That is the reason we exist. That is the most delicious, the most wonderful the most satisfying, the most supreme experience, reality in all of the universe. And if we keep putting that out there, that's the way that the Spirit works to bring about such things. So let's be hopeful and let's be expectant and let's be faithful. And may the Lord do what He wills with us. And when He does, let us be glad. Father, we ask now as we... Uh, we'll stand and sing. We ask that you will help us to sing with sincerity.
that what comes out of our mouths will have come from our hearts. As much as we are able, Father, we ask that your spirit would provoke in us um, such satisfaction that we would find uh, the sweetness, the, the savor of your grace. So pleasing, so wonderful. Brother, your, your servant Paul has said that it is um, beholding the vision of your son, the glory of your son, that transforms us from one degree of glory to another. And so that's what we ask for. We want to be changed. We want to be transformed. And, uh, and since it, that only comes by seeing, beholding, with an unveiled face, we ask that you would take the veil off of our eyes, off of our hearts that you would write on our hearts with your spirit a letter, the letter of the gospel. That your grace, which is sufficient to supply all of our needs, would propel us back more and more into your grace, into your Son. It is from his fullness that we receive grace upon grace. So we ask for this ocean, this tidal wave, made overflow from us into our churches, into our neighborhoods, that we will praise that which we find praiseworthy. And you alone are worthy to receive all honor and glory and power and strength. It's in your great son's name that we pray. Amen.